Kubernetes has been a focus of several previous shows on Software Engineering Daily. The architecture and management of our distributed systems have changed, and widespread adoption of containers and container management systems is just the beginning. Joseph Jacks from Kismatic joins the show today to give us a perspective on the past, present, and future of container management. Joseph also talks about his company, Kismatic, which provides enterprise support for Docker and Kubernetes. Before we get to that episode, a few things. Software Weekly is a newsletter that we put out every Sunday evening to condense what happened in the world of software over the previous week. You can sign up for Software Weekly or join our Slack community at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Also, Software Engineering Daily is looking for new sponsors. If you are interested in advertising on the show, send me a message at softwareengineeringdaily at gmail.com. Joseph Jacks is a founder of Kismatic, a company offering enterprise support for Kubernetes. He's also a part of the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. Joseph, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. Earlier this week, we interviewed Brendan Burns about the Kubernetes project, and that episode will air immediately before this one, so we'll assume that listeners know some about Kubernetes. You write that it is no secret that Kubernetes is one of the fastest-growing open-source projects around, perhaps ever. Why is Kubernetes growing in popularity so quickly? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think... Uh, a lot of people are asking this question, especially considering how popular Kubernetes is um, is these days in, in in relation to where it was, you know, less than two years ago, and sort of taken a lot of people by surprise in that regard. Um, I, I think it's a it's kind of a function of timing. So we're, we're really seeing a huge change in software development and operations uh, towards you know embracing containers and sort of as a new packaging paradigm for for code as well as deployment and management of, of applications. And, and in, in conjunction with that, people are sort of being forced to solve problems uh, at, at a bunch of different levels of the stack, uh, particularly around um, how networking works, how load balancing works, how you sort of discover services, how services stay alive. Um, and so I think over the last, you know, probably two and a half to three years, we've seen uh, a big rise in um, popularity of these different cluster management orchestration scheduling systems, um, and you know there's 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 a, a wide variety of them out there. Um, uh, I think specific to Kubernetes, there's a common thread of uh, sort of history and origin that make it really stand out from from a lot of the other systems, um, which is that you know Google in in particular have actually decided to build this system from scratch and 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 release it as an open source project. Uh, written in Go, which is a, also another really uh, high growth, uh, you know, software project, open source project, a programming language, and Kubernetes um, is obviously written in Go. What what sort of came um, as the inspiration for Kubernetes was Google's experience over the last, you know, say twelve to thirteen years in actually scaling out their applications and their their data center infrastructure. So right around 2000 and, uh, 2003, 2004, Google had uh, decided that they needed to automate a lot of their software layer aspects in, in terms of scaling their distributed services and scaling their overall search index application, but also as they started to build out other, other applications. And so they actually built um, a, a series of 
uh, software ap- applications and, and abstractions uh, on top of their data center infrastructure to sort of help manage, um, you know, the life cycle of provisioning machines and scaling services and, and sort of handling all these different aspects. And ultimately, you know, they, they've, they've come out uh, publicly and, and shared a lot of detail around the system called Borg. It was actually uh, previously more of a, a, a queuing system called Global Work Queue that evolved into something called Borg. Uh, and then they, they obviously built a lot of other ancillary services and functionality around it. But fundamentally, what Borg was is, is really just a, a global resource manager and, and cluster manager for, uh, you know, for the global sort of homogenous um, server fleet inside of Google's data centers uh, globally. And so, you know, enter, you know, 2016, where Google is, is arguably the biggest sort of cloud you know, uh, management infrastructure on the planet. Obviously, they build their own servers. They have their own uh, data center infrastructure. But, you know, they're not public with this, but it's in the millions of, of millions of machines, right? And so they, they've, they've sort of achieved a level of efficiency that is, I think, in a, to- in a, a completely unique league of its own. And so with, with that, you know, G- Google has actually come out and said, our, our learnings and efficiencies that we've gained over time and sort of perfecting distributed systems in terms of scaling out our applications and our data center infrastructure can actually be really useful to, to anyone, to actually to, to a developer on their laptop, uh, you know, using a few VMs, uh, all the way up to other companies in industry that, that are similar, uh, perhaps even close to similar scale as Google. So that's, that's the, I think that's what's really exciting about Kubernetes is it's sort of taking those learnings from, from Google, and it's actually built by the same engineers uh, that built Borg. So Brendan, who you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, has worked in, internally at, at Google on, on the Borg system and on other other systems, but um, you know, very very deeply on the cluster management side for many many years, along with his colleagues uh, Brian Grant and, and Joe Bita and others who who have have sort of been the founding engineering team. So that's I think that's what's been really interesting about Kubernetes. Um, just on top of the fact that you know, you asked sort of why is it such a popular system. Um, uh, I think there's a very high bar in terms of engineering quality in the code base, and Google is constantly pushing new uh, new features based on the feedback from the community and based on users. And so there's a very rapid sort of closed loop process from like new ideas and bugs and issues that that sort of surface into into sort of actually solving those and releasing new functionality. So I think that's another aspect. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to describe. It's sort of a long answer, but it, it is a super popular system, and um, you know, it's, it's exciting to see that. And why did you get involved with Kubernetes? Uh, so me personally, so I'm actually not not a software engineer. I'm I'm sort of self trained. I can write a bit of code, and you know, I've sort of learned uh, learned a couple languages over the last few years. But um, I I actually really love reading research papers. So like over over the last five or six years, sort of. I've always been interested in like the uh, you know sort of uh, ACMQ or you know uh, all, all the all the different uh, research papers that Google publishes and other other companies. And so, actually, originally um, was really in terms of getting involved in this in this particular area uh, was was really interested in the Mesos system. So I read I read the Mesos paper like late 2013 um, from from the UC Berkeley AMP Lab. And that was a super fascinating system to me. At the time, I was working for uh, a company called Stratius, uh, and they were they were one of these early multi-cloud management API abstraction layer sort of uh, systems for for sort of abstracting all these different cloud provider interfaces in terms of like the the virtual machine uh, you know primitives. 
And, um, you know, the, 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 the sort of the rise of containers was just sort of becoming apparent at that time. I, you know, Docker had, had just uh, launched uh, earlier in 2013. And, um, and so one of, the, one of the early questions around sort of the, the, the people like really close to this kind of technology was like, well, we've got all these containers, you know, how do we manage them? How do we sort of, how do we make sure that there are uh, reliable primitives uh, that, that basically underlie the application uh, that you have you know, running in containers? And so that was really interesting. And I was super fascinated with Mesos and then obviously heard of uh, Mesosphere, which is the, the company uh, that was started around, around Mesos. And um, I have somewhat of a background in sort of commercial open source and so, so like companies form, formed around open source projects. And so I just thought, you know, I'm a huge believer in open source. Uh, I just thought it was really interesting to see a company around this project. Um, and then obviously to learn the, the, the story behind, you know, the Mesos history of like uh, solving the fail whale and make, making, um, you know, Twitter's transition from a big monolithic Ruby on Rails application to, uh, to like a distributed microservice kind of oriented uh, environment using Mesos and other technologies. And so I just thought it was really interesting technology. And it started to do some consulting at Mesosphere and sort of working, uh, working with some of the folks there. And in that process, um, uh, started to sort of collaborate and develop a relationship with um, a team that, that Mesosphere had actually brought in uh, through, through one of their acquisitions. Um, I think it's actually their only acquisition of a, a, a company doing a graph database. And so that was Patrick Riley's previous startup. And so Patrick's the, the CEO of Kismatic. So we we just sort of got got together, and this is you know fast forwarding to like mid two thousand fourteen, when Kubernetes was was launched, and uh, you know we just really looked at Kubernetes and thought, wow, this is a really exciting system. Um, you know, Mesos solves things at at a more you know sort of lower level in terms of the the resource scheduling um, and resource allocation aspect of things, and it has some really um, really sophisticated algorithms around solving those types of problems and, and sort of abstracts a lot of that away from the developer uh, and operator. Uh, what, what Kubernetes sort of um, has has intended to solve from the beginning as far as like a design goal has been more the higher level aspects of, of distributed systems um, as opposed to just focusing on the scheduling piece. And so, you know, Kubernetes kind of took uh, a set of primitives that, that obviously came from Borg and looked at you know, how do you actually package the app? How do you deploy it um, in, in, a, in a declarative way, in a declarative interface, uh, which is a su- super popular sort of way that people, people are, are interacting with their, their systems these days. And then obviously, how do, you, um, you know, how do you manage the health of that service over time? How do you get to it? How, do that, how does that service talk to other services? So it's very sort of like kind of a distributed systems SDK or framework more than, more than just one singular you know, very uh, rich focus around sort of the scheduling piece. Kubernetes also has a scheduler, but it's more more naive and extensible and pluggable compared to Mesos. So we just really saw those things in a sort of a confluence of things and thought Kubernetes, um, you know, mostly due to the fact that Google uh, was taking those same, you know, really world-class engineers and, and putting putting them behind this project. We thought that uh, Kubernetes would grow into something really significant and, and really, um, really interesting, like long-term. We all just sort of thought, you know, wow, this is a great opportunity um, and we should, we should, you know, go and start a company around this. And so totally. So, so we'll get into Kismatic a little bit later on, but I wanted to talk about the cloud native computing foundation, which yep. is an organization that you're a part of. What is the CNCF? Great question. So CNCF is a new collaborative project under the Linux foundation. So, um, fairly recently, this is like within the last two or three years, 
Jim Zemlin, who's the uh, who's like the, the the president or executive director. I can't recall his title. But he's like the, the guy that runs Linux Foundation. Linus Torvalds reports to him, and like the, he has basically like all the projects under him. Uh, he decided to create this construct called collaborative projects, which is basically sort of a home for um, uh, uh, sort of a, a a building block for different open source communities and different open source governance models. And so um, what came out of that was uh, like Open Compute um, uh, Foundation is, is one of these collaborative projects, Cloud Foundry Foundation, uh, a variety of others, and, and now Cloud, Cloud Native Computing Foundation. And it's, it's really um, a set of things. So it's a governing body of technologists and, and engineers, uh, mostly uh, sort of coming together around a set of common goals and initiatives and, and CNCF in particular is very focused on cloud native technologies. Now cloud native is, is something I think as a term that we're still kind of conditioning people into understanding really what it means. Cause it has a lot of, it's very semantically, you know, uh, complex and a lot of people look at it in different ways, but the way CNCF describes cloud native is, um, systems that are container packaged, um, microservice, microservice oriented and dynamically scheduled. And what that really means is, you know, things that really fall into the bucket of, of, of you know, systems like Kubernetes. So, so Kubernetes was actually the first project that was donated into CNCF. Um, and CNCF was really sort of kicked off by the, the founding, the founding uh, team from Kubernetes at Google in order to, to really uh, decouple, you know, Kubernetes from Google uh, and essentially bring it into its own governance body and its own governance model. Yeah, so let's, t- let's talk more about that. So you wrote this blog post last July, which was detailing the reasons for CNCF to exist. And the one that you focused on the most was decoupling Kubernetes from Google, as I just mentioned. Why is this the initial focus of the CNCF? Why is it so important that Kubernetes gets decoupled from Google? And and what, what are the aspects of Kubernetes that are tightly coupled with Google? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think uh, there's there's a few really big reasons. Um, there's probably a long list of reasons why it's important that, that Kubernetes is decoupled from Google, but I'll just kind of uh, articulate a few, and then and then I can sort of describe like why, you know, why why uh, you know why it's why it's important that that, that it is an independent thing. Um, so K- Kubernetes was obviously built by Google, which means that the the majority of the commits and the majority of the the sort of the code base is actually written by Google engineers. In the very beginning, we, we sort of started to see a lot of excitement around the projects. So companies like Red Hat and CoreOS and, and Kismatic and many others really started to contribute pretty heavily to the project and, and, and get excited about it, either by building their own projects uh, or their own distributions or just you know, writing upstream functionality or contributing new ideas. And so, obviously, I think Kubernetes started to, to develop as a full-fledged kind of open source project in and of itself outside of Google, but it was still owned by Google. Um, you know, uh, up until the creation of the CNCF and that and that that the whole construct. So, you know, the, in terms of you know the the lower lower level things, IP, uh, the brand, the name, the code base. You know, you would go to GitHub and it would be GitHub slash Google Cloud Platform slash Kubernetes, right? And it was sort of very evident that that it was a Google project and Google owned. And so, for for a lot of people, um, that that wasn't necessarily a good thing. A lot of people sort of thought, well, wow, you know, Kubernetes is a great project, but you know, I don't want it sort of owned and overly influenced by a single vendor and by, by a single company sort of controlling or maybe perhaps even optimizing certain functionality to its, its platform. Because Google obviously has, has a significant commercial interest in terms of 
building a public cloud uh, uh, platform competitive to Azure and Amazon. And uh, you know, it's fairly easy to sort of connect those dots as a as an end user or as a potential as a potential customer. So that's one aspect that I think is addressed by Kubernetes, um, you know, now uh, sort of being owned by everyone effectively, being owned by the community, being owned by, by, the, by the users. Um, uh, the other aspect, I think, is really around creating, um, uh, you know, creating a real independent ecosystem of companies around Kubernetes. And I, I, I don't think that that would really be possible if, uh, you know, if Google continued to sort of uh, hold on to all of the all of the legal aspects and the code base and everything. Uh, it would probably be harder, um, but it would be it would be uh, it would be really difficult. So what what CNCF does is it really allows um, uh, it really allows for sort of a form for different companies to actually come forward in an agnostic way and actually contribute meaningful things, meaningful ideas in terms of uh, code contributions or integrations or partnerships or what have you. And and sort of let that be very uh, vendor agnostic and, right. and focused around the actual quality of the code base, pushing the pushing the community forward and different things. And so, so yeah. help help me understand the the importance of vendor agnosticism. So so maybe one analogy we could we could contrast this Kubernetes with Google relationship is Mesos with the Mesosphere. Is there a problematic relationship with Mesosphere? having significant dominion over Mesos, just like you see the problematic relationship of Google having dominion over Kubernetes? That, that's, that's a really, uh, so you're very sharp. You, you, you quickly, you, you, you quickly, uh, you, you quickly assessed, you know, different, uh, different models. You know, I, I don't think any, any model is necessarily right. It's just different. And so with Kubernetes, Living in its own foundation, I think it directly addresses a lot of the, the concerns and, and issues around sort of the single vendor uh, effectively owning and you know potentially benefiting from the success of that project over time. Um, you know, ultimately, you, you know, you look at things like um, you know the Cassandra project in the NoSQL world. There's effectively one you know one vendor which is Datastax kind of owning, um, you know, owning a lot of the evolution in terms of the, 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 the patches and bug fixes and the, and, the, and the functionality and the roadmap and all these different things. Obviously, there's a lot of people contributing, but, you know, you, you, it's sort of, it's, it's, Apache, it's Apache Cassandra. So there's like PMC chairs. There's people who are like very actively involved. And the majority of those are Datastax, you know, em- employees, right? I mean, I, 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 this might not be 100% accurate, but I'm just using that as an example because I think that that's a fair example. Um, you know, I think that potentially might stay the case or, or, or resemble resemble Mesos and, and the Mesosphere dynamic. Um, again, I don't think it's good or bad. It's just different. Um, and people sort of have to make their own decisions around that. But but ultimately, you know, as, as, as everyone has opinions and is, is sort of uh, welcome to have their own opinions, I'm, I'm fairly opinionated around the fact that open source projects, uh, which ultimately live in sort of vendor agnostic foundations or constructs, uh, communities, uh, you know, sort of, sort of are set up for the higher chances of, 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 you know, widespread success, widespread use over time. And I think it's kind of like, if you look at the Apache software foundation as, uh, something to sort of maybe use as a reference point for CNCF and sort of how CNCF is evolving. Um, I think ASF has really set a really solid example of sort of an umbrella for lots of different open source projects to, to live. Um, but also different projects that potentially might be competitive, and so that's something that we that we sort of can hint at with the future of CNCF, where you know Kubernetes is for now the the only project that's granted into the CNCF, and that is uh, effectively 
the uh, the first the first project. Uh, but over time, there there will be more uh, open source technologies built into CNCF and potentially even competitive ones. And so we sort of look at that and and uh, and, and sort of see that um, you know ultimately it's more around. The, the vendor agnostic governance model and sort of how do we build an ecosystem as opposed to, you know, a very opinionated set of, of tools that, you know, that may or may not compete. So speaking of things that may or may not compete, I, I and we're talking about Mesos and Kubernetes, I keep hearing about people running Kubernetes on Mesos, but I don't hear about the reverse. I don't hear about Mesos running on Kubernetes. And I've been trying to understand the subtle differences between Kubernetes and Mesos. Could you describe how they differ and why people would want to run one on the other? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So, I mean, Mesosphere is actually one of the companies that I didn't mention earlier that's actually directly contributing to, Mes- uh, to Kubernetes. And they actually have a, a, you know, a, really, a really friendly stance toward the project. Um, I think their approach is a, is a bit different from other companies in the ecosystem that are perhaps building, you know, Kubernetes distributions or platform as a service offerings on top of Kubernetes, or that sort of use Kubernetes primitives as a building block. Um, what what Mesosphere has uh, has sort of proposed and 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 contributed in terms of their their code contributions to Kubernetes, among uh, among other things, is um, a Mesos framework for Kubernetes. And so, if you look at how the the Mesos project itself sort of works, obviously you have the low level scheduler resource manager piece that I mentioned earlier, which is the sort of you know very um, you know well defined and I don't want to say monolithic, but you know you don't really extend the low level Mesos piece if you're using Mesos. You sort of just you know call the API and you know you build things on top of that API. It's it's, it's sort of you know the, the Mesos system is the C plus plus system, and there's a lot of people that don't you know sort of have those skills to go in and dig into the, the organs of, of the Mesos system. So you build frameworks. And so what frameworks do is sort of encapsulate uh, the logic of a service or an application that you that you'd like might, might want to run on top of Kubernetes or a system for launching different things that, that has different sort of uh, 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 way of, of dealing with uh, restarts and recovery and sort of different different types of application workloads. And so you know, there's a variety of different frameworks. Uh, another word for frameworks in the Mesos world is a scheduler, so f- scheduler framework. Um, so there's things like Marathon, which uh, the Mesosphere team built. And Marathon is essentially for running uh, web service, sort of long-running oriented uh, applications. Uh, things like Kronos for doing sort of dependency chain-based kind of cron-style uh, workloads and, and tasks. And uh, things like... Um, Things like Aurora, which is somewhat similar to Marathon that Twitter built um, with their own sort of DSL and their own their own uh, their own syntax, and so they actually built um, uh, a way that you can sort of encapsulate uh, a number of the Kubernetes primitives inside of a Mesos framework and actually run that against the Mesos API. So things that actually come out of that, and some some potentially useful uh, aspects would be running multiple Kubernetes clusters side by side and sort of different versions and perhaps comparing comparing those two or sort of different clusters. Um, you, can, you can do the same, um, you know, effectively with Kubernetes clusters just running on bare metal or directly on, on an infrastructure. Um, perhaps maybe a better example would be running Kubernetes alongside a Hadoop cluster or a Spark cluster and, and actually sharing, um, sharing all the resources in one sort of logic, logically dynamic pool of, of, of compute resources and having sort of Mesos figure out um, you know, which resources are actually served up to those different frameworks. So as far as we know, Google doesn't have Mesos as the higher level layer 
that they run Kubernetes on top of. So how would a system that uses just Kubernetes, like Google, like Google having Kubernetes orchestrating all their stuff, or I guess Borg is what they use. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. But how would that contrast with somebody using Mesos with Kubernetes on top of Mesos? Uh, how would those two types of systems contrast? Uh, so, so you mean sort of how, how Kubernetes on Mesos would contrast with what Google does internally? I guess. I'm, I mean, so like I understand that you can use Mesos as like a, a, a proving ground for testing different versions of Kubernetes. And I understand that Mesos is this platform where you could plug in other distributed systems on top of it. Um, but my understanding is that Kubernetes kind of is effectively can, can do the same thing. Like you, you could interchange Kubernetes with Mesos and and have the same kind of, like you could also theoretically make the same argument that yeah you could use Kubernetes and and test uh, two different environments of Mesos you know alongside each other so it, I, and look I, I mean I've, I heard the same the same argument from from Ben Hindman talking about uh, Mesos being able to test multiple Kubernetes environments I totally uh, believe that this is like that this makes sense I'm just trying to understand like from a usability perspective of somebody who who hasn't actually messed around with these things what is the like what is the advantage of running kubernetes on mesos versus mesos on kubernetes and i'm trying to encapsulate that into the question of like why isn't google why wouldn't google want to use mesos or does google have something that is in place of mesos yeah okay that's that's a, so a few questions in there um uh but uh, i'll do my best so um Mesos on Kubernetes is is something that we haven't really heard much of um, because sort of the architecture in Kubernetes allows for encapsulation of uh, you know of, of containers mostly comprising uh, application components. So you know messaging, queuing, you know load balancing, proxying service, obviously your you know web server. Piece. Nothing distributed. Well, not necessarily nothing distributed. So you can run, you know, things like Cassandra, um, you know, in, in containers and pods on, on Kubernetes and achieve, you know, see some really nice benefits there uh, running alongside different, you know, different application components and sort of, um, you know, a, a lot of different benefits just in terms of, you know, the release, uh, the, the release cycle or doing A-B deploys or, you know, having, uh, having more, more of a granular view of how you sort of carve out different um Different portions of infrastructure for different services, and obviously just the, the ease of, of management of those services. But um, I think we haven't really heard of too many people uh, uh, wanting to deploy Mesos on Kubernetes because Mesos is just a lower level system, and it's sort of better fit to just run directly on top of the hardware or or the virtual virtualization layer as opposed to on top of another orchestration system. Um, you know, frankly, again, you're, you're sort of your 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 uh, you know your questions actually bring up some really interesting points, which is, you know, you should really be considering pretty uh, pretty fundamentally what these systems are actually doing, uh, because there is quite a lot of overlap. Um, you know, with Mesos and Marathon in particular, um, there, there's there's a significant amount of overlap with uh, with respect to Kubernetes. I think the big things to sort of consider there are Mesos and Marathon again are are you know sort of you know, proven production grade systems, uh, but they've been built for some specific uh, kinds of use cases. And, um, you know, sort of marathon again for, for launching uh, sort of the long running web service uh, applications that always need to stay alive. And you have sort of a specific um, number of tasks that, that comprise that web service that you sort of always want to be available. 
Um, not, not terribly dissimilar to how Kubernetes does replica sets or replication controller based um, uh, sort of rubber stamping of, of services. So, you know, always want five or always want 10 available and the system conforms to that desired number. Um, the, some of the big differences there obviously are Kubernetes doesn't, doesn't really pay a huge emphasis on the scheduler piece or the, the, the sort of the resource management piece. Uh, whereas with Mesos, that's, that's essentially like the, the core thing that it does. Um, and, and in Kubernetes, we have a wide array of primitives that handle, um, you know, management of, of the life cycle of distributed systems that, that, that and, you know, inherently web applications and, and, and applications in general that people are writing these days are distributed systems if they're running on the internet. You know, they're running in different geo, geo, geo locations. They have uh, different sort of uh, SLAs across the service layers. They have uh, different ways of actually getting at those services. The network stack's totally redefined these days because of the, the sort of the unit of isolation is much smaller. Uh, the speed at which people want to iterate on their services is rapidly changing. And so um, I think a lot of that plays into the thought process, um, you know, that Google's put behind Kubernetes and the design of Kubernetes um, one of the other things that, that's really different with Kubernetes is that there's a, there's a really high degree of, of uh, a decoupling across the different primitives. And so with, uh, with Kubernetes, the, 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 the sort of the unit of encapsulation or unit of isolation is the pod. And, you know, you can sort of think of a pod as a co-location of containers. So Docker containers or other containers in the future. Uh, and so you'd have um, very tightly coupled logic inside of a pod. So you might have a container that's doing some type of system service and another container doing, uh, doing something around a, a git sync or some type of data pulling, serving operation. And you'd want to make sure that those containers are always deployed on the same host, even if they're dying or getting restarted. And so you wouldn't, you want to want to run those in different pods. You want to run them in one pod. And so when that pod dies or gets restarted somewhere, it's always going to come up on the same host. Um, in order to maintain the sort of the fidelity of that that for that particular piece of functionality, um, and so that's why Google has actually put forth this idea of a pod, which is a very very different sort of core primitive and construct, you know, from systems in Mesos like where you have a task and it's just one task, and if you yeah. want to link or combine tasks, you have to write a lot of custom logic. That's just one custom uh, aspect in other systems that sort of have to have to do this. Um, and the other thing in Kubernetes is. You know, again, as far as the, 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 the decoupling and the layering uh, of the primitives, and this is a really important piece, is um, something called a service. And this is a, probably the worst name that they could call a primitive. It's like, you know, okay, this is my service. And, you know, it's just like, what does this actually mean? But if you, if you sort of parenthesize micro before service, it makes more sense. It's essentially a microservice. <laughs> so what effectively a service does is it gives you a virtual IP on top of a grouping of pods. So you could say these are my backend, uh, you know, web server pods, right? And I want to direct traffic inside the cluster to those pods uh, or outside the cluster. So you could have sort of an external IP or a private IP that that's basically fronting those those pods, and that's what a service is. And you can you can label that service, and you can sort of select the label against that service. That's the labeling system. Labeling lab, labeling systems are pervasive. It's not it's not you know like attributes or metadata assigned to objects. It's it's very different than Kubernetes. So you do assign those key value string pair object uh, object uh, metadata to two different pieces of Kubernetes and primitives. But you actually the, the distinction in Kubernetes, which is a huge huge distinction but it's subtle a lot of people have to sort of take their take their time to sort of grasp this is that it, it's actually sort of a, like a, a, a search query or a, or a selector against those labels and so instead of thinking hierarchically 
about your application stack or your services and sort of labeling, you know, this is a, a parent of this child and this child is branched off into these separate units uh, and sort of having to think about that in a traditional configuration model. With Kubernetes, you basically assign these labels of, you know, um, Jeff-QA slash V1.1, right? And then you would sort of use that, you know, syntax. Again, it's a totally, you know, key value pair uh, oriented thing, so you can label it whatever you want. And the uh -huh. selector through the command line or through whatever interface you'd like um, basically lets you query against those labels. And you can query against parts of the labels or the full exact label. And that gives you a way to, instead of hierarchically organizing and arranging your, your, your services, to do it in a more distributed way. And so, okay. uh, it, and actually, that's really super powerful and, and, and gives you a lot of different primitives. Those are just a few primitives in Kubernetes that, that I think highlight the, the thought process and the distinction of a system that's very, very focused on one particular thing. And, and, and in, the, in the Mesos case, you know, sort of very rich, you know, algorithmically intelligent bin packing and scheduling, uh, as opposed to where Kubernetes is more, more focused on sort of the, 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 the distributed systems aspects. Um, and it's, again, it's not... It's not better or worse. I think it's it's better for certain types of things, uh, but it's just, it's it's obviously different in some pretty fundamental ways. Understood. So I want to talk now about Kismatic, which is a company that you're working on that provides enterprise support for Kubernetes. So Kismatic says that, or you guys talk about, you want to be for Kubernetes what Mesosphere is for Mesos. So tell me more about what the company offers and maybe give some analogs uh, between Kismatic and these other uh, types of types of businesses, you know, like, like Mesosphere or Red Hat or perhaps Cloudera that uh, build a business around an open source project. Sure. So we obviously were inside of Mesosphere when, when Kubernetes was launched and, and we were really excited to see the Kubernetes project um, really just dived in directly at when the project was launched. So we've been code contributors uh, since the very beginning of the project, as well as really active in the community uh, of, of early end users, uh, early companies adopting Kubernetes. So uh, what I was going to say is Kismatic's been involved in Kubernetes as, as direct, like direct code contributors, as well as sort of involved in the community um, since, since the very beginning of the project. So we, I think we have a, a unique um, perspective on some of the evolution. Other companies have been involved since the very beginning as well. Um, companies like like CoreOS and uh, and 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 Red Hat, um, but but effectively, we we really wanted to create a company um, again, sort of as by analogy to what Cloudera is for Hadoop, or what you know perhaps what Mirantis is for OpenStack, sort of be the the complete uh, commercial open source company behind Kubernetes. And you know we're we're well under uh, two years in, and I think we have a ton of work ahead of us. Um, but but effectively, a lot of the things we've been working on have been getting companies, um, you know, really excited about the, the technology. Again, we sort of started very shortly after the project was created. So the, 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 the sort of the commentary was, you know, what's Kubernetes? You know, like, what's this thing? To now everyone's like, oh, yeah, I run it in production too. Like, you know, are you, are you running it in production? Yeah. So it's a totally different dynamic now. Hundreds of companies using it in production, thousands of companies using it, uh, you know, 700 contributors. It's sort of like explosive growth over the last, you know, again, less than two years. But um, we've been really focused on a lot of evangelism aspects. Um, we founded the Kubernetes Community Conference, which is KubeCon. And so that's, that's been a, a successful event. Uh, we've tried to keep that very vendor, uh, you know, very vendor agnostic. We, we keep a pretty low profile. Um, and we, we really, you know, we really wanted that to be um, sort of the, 
the, the community sort of mecca for, for Kubernetes. So people could come together, talk about their stories, lessons learned. Um, skeptics could come together and learn, uh, as well as production users could kind of come and share their stories and, and, and sort of just a, you know, a community, community conference for the project. Um, you know, the other things we've been working on have really just been around getting people up and running with, with Kubernetes. And so getting them in production, getting them more, more sort of oriented around best practices for production setups for um, you know, for configuration and integration into their existing system. So that's that's a big topic with large enterprises, um, you know, particularly in media and banking and telco, uh, insurance, where there's there's a, an enormous amount of investment in legacy infrastructure uh, on the networking and, and uh, you know the 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 storage and uh, you know sort of configuration management side of things. And so companies, you know, that that are adopting this this new you know sort of not necessarily bleeding edge technology. Uh, at this point, but uh, still very new technology, um, need a lot of work in terms of the systems integration side of things. So we've been we've been focusing on a lot of that as well. Um, and yeah, again, just just really encouraging people to look at Kubernetes as a new way and a new paradigm for um, for for building and deploying distributed systems and applications, as well as um, obviously managing their their resources, their infrastructure more efficiently. So, what is a typical enterprise that would want Kismatic's help? in adopting Kubernetes? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, we've worked with companies from sort of so, sort of two buckets. So on one bucket, um, companies that are sort of in the hyperscale internet, uh, consumer internet space. Um, so a good, a good example of one of our customers is Lithium Technologies. And they're a, a company in San Francisco. They do um, like social media management, social media engagement uh, uh, products. They're about 500 employees, been around for maybe 10 or so years. And they have a huge Java code base, uh, kind of like a legacy monolithic Java application that that they've been sort of over over the last couple of years, like breaking apart and and you know releasing new types of services, new functionality, uh, while obviously being able to call into the existing um, you know the existing logic in their application. But they've been adopting Kubernetes, they've been adopting containers, and one of the things that they've they've needed our help with is really just around sort of the operational workflow for serving up an environment to their internal developer user. So they're in sort of the large enterprises, you typically have IT operations or, or systems. Uh, in the hyperscale consumer internet groups, you have cloud platforms. Um, and so, so Lithium's group uh, that basically services their internal developer constituency is basically called the cloud platform uh, uh, group, cloud platform engineering or CPE. It's kind of a common um, you know, terminology for that type of function. And what those guys are really focused on doing is sort of serving up um, APIs and, and, and interfaces into their, uh, their, their developer community such that guys can sort of come in, guys and gals can come in on the developer side and say, hey, I want an API for, you know, for this core service inside of the Lithium stack. And I want to be able to compose and sort of weave together these different systems that comprise of my new service and, and actually launch that very quickly. And I don't want to worry about machines. I don't want to worry about where things run. I don't want to have to SSH into something and change some config or some, some low-level object. I don't want to worry about you know the OS parameter or uh, the OS layer. I just want to think about my code, ship my code, and, and be done with it. So our, our type of like com, uh, sort of customer end user and, and the hyperscale sort of like, uh, not, not necessarily hyperscale, but consumer internet side of the bucket is the cloud platform group on the second bucket um, for enterprises? The, the sort of the you might call them legacy enterprises or companies that have been around for like decades. Um, you know, there's typically a core IT operations um, department that that's really tasked with 
you know, you know, traditionally serving up virtual machines effectively and, and carving up that infrastructure, maintaining um, chargeback and showback data and figuring out, you know, how to keep track of those resources as they sort of provision them for, for again, developer, you know, uh, customers. And, and what those guys are going through is a much more, I would call it uh, volatile transformation <laughs> in terms of sort of how they move away from the unit of measure traditionally being the virtual machine for everything and, and going into uh, this brave new world of containers and, and sort of understanding how, you know, Linux kernel primitives work as, as compared to, you know, x86 virtualization and all, all the different like fundamental things that, that, that are, that are big cognitive, um, you know, uh, 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 areas to, to sort of jump over. Um, and then in, in, the, in those groups, we, t- we tend to sort of stay focused much more on the systems integration side of things. So there's lots of homegrown or um, traditional products that are there for load balancing or DNS or, or service discovery or networking that, um, you know, Kubernetes has its own sort of opinions around. And we sort of have to map those things into existing services um, and so I guess a couple examples for you would be, um, you know, on the load balancing side, there's things like F5, right, in, in big enterprises. And so, you know, we've got to integrate with the F5 load balancer or on, on the DNS side, there's things like Infoblox, right? So like, how do we, how do we rationalize the Infoblox service into our, you know, into our net new, you know, uh, Kubernetes has a, has a built-in, you know, DNS uh, thing called SkyDNS. Uh, and that, that handles sort of the mapping of your SRV records and how you actually translate into backend services from 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 your from your uh, you know outbound DNS names and so all, all these sort of primitives and, and and things on the syntax side are um, are definitely impedance mismatches with core enterprise systems that have been around for a long time so a lot of our work is definitely around that and in, ter- in terms of other things um, stability and security are are really big factors for enterprises and so we spend a lot of work around, um, you know, around helping them in those areas. But those are the two types of um, types of companies we work with. So tell me about the challenges of scaling Kismatic as a business. Um, so support businesses can sometimes be hard to scale because you have, you know, you, you need to hire solutions architects and uh, those can be sometimes hard to find. Are there enough developers to deploy to customers or... Uh, are there enough customers to serve the developers that you have? Um, yeah, tell me about like just growing the business. Yeah, so I, I think we've we've sort of decided to be really calculated around how we scale. Um, you know, lot, lots of companies in this in this space, um, you know, have, have taken you know huge influx uh, of capital and tried to grow really quickly. We've been a little bit more um, uh, more focused on specific customers and learning from those customers as opposed to, you know, wanting to really grow super quickly just in terms of headcount. And so I think from that, from that standpoint, we've, um, we've been more selective with customers as opposed to sort of taking any engagement that kind of comes our way and, uh, and, and learned a lot from what people are doing and, and very sort of focused and serious initiatives as opposed to, you know, anyone that just wants, uh, you know, a, a quick, a quick consulting engagement, um, but yeah, to your point, it de- definitely is um, very different sort of scaling a services support business. Uh, you sort of scale, you know, more linearly versus um, non-linearly with, uh, you know, with scaling perhaps a company where you're just, you know, selling a software product and your, 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 your unit of measure uh, is, is effectively scaled through software. And so you don't have to worry about, um, you know, o- overhead, uh, you know, growing in line with your, with your, with your revenue. Um, 
And so I think uh, with with us, we've been we've been really focused on helping companies, but that's always had sort of um, an expiration date around you know uh, sort of a, a massing kind of a critical mass of knowledge and what people are actually doing and translating that into a product roadmap that that we, that we pursue. So we've actually um, launched sort of a beta program for our uh, open source Kubernetes distribution, and that's something that. We, uh, we, we are going to be coming out with, uh, you know, in the coming months, but it's, it's, a, it's effectively a simplified management experience for both enterprises and f- for companies on the, on, the, on the consumer internet side in terms of just deploying Kubernetes and getting it up and running and managing the overall life cycle of, of services. And, and that's something that, um, that we will license in, ter- in terms of a, a subscription license. One of the big distinctions there, though, is, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to do our, do our absolute best to keep a lot of those uh, components as open source as possible and, and essentially to not sort of fork off into our own proprietary, you know, management dashboard, our own proprietary, uh, you know, distribution, uh, our own release cadence. We want to stay really true to um, to the op- to the open source upstream in Kubernetes, which is moving very rapidly. And, and you know, you're constantly seeing new new features released out of that. So I can't I can't talk uh, terribly m- much more about that, but that that's effectively kind of the and you bring up a really good point. You know that's that's a, that's effectively the, trend, the transition point that we're at now in terms of going from uh, you know support and services and training into selling uh, you know selling a subscription that that helps us grow our business more uh, more non linearly. Okay, so I want to begin to close off by just talking about how you are seeing organizations change after adopting Kubernetes. Could you give me an idea of how developers are more productive with Kubernetes or perhaps how Kubernetes changes the relationship between developers and ops teams? Totally, yeah. I mean, I think Kubernetes is just front and center in terms of this, this transformation around DevOps and, and sort of the roles um, getting redefined in terms of systems and, 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 and the overall you know, the overall operations development the sort of communities. Um, I, I think sort of a world before Kubernetes is, is, is fundamentally more imperative and more procedural. So what we've seen in infrastructure systems um, over the last five or six years, particularly with the rise of OpenStack and systems that sort of provide VM, VM primitive oriented frameworks for sort of pooling compute is effectively, um, you know, an, an evolution of what of, of what of what has happened before, but at a different level of abstraction, um, and so it, it hasn't really been that disruptive, frankly. Um, you know, a lot of people would argue, uh, you know, you know, thing, things like OpenStack, OpenStack have been very very disruptive in terms of the management experience, and I think they certainly have, and they've given people freedom of choice to choose at different levels. But um, I think the real breakthrough comes when you you actually start looking at your systems declaratively. And lots of different, uh, lots of different uh, configuration management or lifecycle management or application lifecycle management systems have sort of touted that they have uh, a declarative um, uh, uh, or, or sort of an evolutionary interface into into how they operate. But I think until until Kubernetes came along, we didn't really see something that uh, that that matched with that sort of philosophy. So with Kubernetes, I think the the sort of the the, the day after. Um, you know, you have something running in production. The development workflow is much more uh, akin to how how you look at uh, really how you look at evolution or things that, that that sort of very rapidly iterate over time. And and this is sort of the way that that Eric Brewer articulates it. And so Eric Eric's uh, pretty much like the, the the chief chief scientist, chief researcher at Google, 
uh, you know, behind a lot of the things they're they're doing on the next generation side for compute distributed systems. But he's he's very actively involved in Kubernetes. He actually announced he actually launched launched uh, you know the, the project at the first at the first DockerCon. The way he describes what Kubernetes does is it gives you evolution, and I, I really like this this description because. You know, I think as developers now look at their systems, they're looking at them much more in a way that they can very rapidly increment and, and release new functionality, and, and much in the same way that mirrors, you know, you know, biology and evolution, where where you essentially want to increment and adapt based on the the changing behaviors around a specific system, and and it, whether that's load or whether that's the um, you know the, the the type of service that you're that you're that you're offering or how you want to gradually evolve compared to your, um, you know, your competitors or how, um, you know, how, how that system interacts with other systems that are, that are changing or that are dependencies to it. Um, I think Kubernetes gives, uh, gives developers radical uh, improvements in, in productivity and efficiency because the interface is essentially, you know, here's my, you know, here's my application code. Uh, I'll release it, and and that's that's essentially what uh, you know what the workflow is. You don't you don't have to worry about what machine that actually runs on. You know how you keep that service alive. You know how you uh, how you essentially um, you know uh, take down that service. You, you don't you don't really take down services in, in Kubernetes. You version them and you increment them, and th- and there's different ways that you would go about doing that. But I think that's the really the biggest paradigm from. Paradigm change from what uh, from 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 what people have been doing before and to, to coming into Kubernetes is it just gives them a system that allows them to scale product productivity without having a sort of lockstep uh, increase in operational overhead. Um, you know, you have a, a radical change in, in the amount of resources you can actually manage from an operational standpoint. Um, so, you know, with Google's Borg, there there were. Um, I think uh, up until very recently, only a couple of a couple of hundred uh, site reliability engineers or SREs for the you know single digit millions of servers in their in their fleet, and this is an extremely high ratio of like server to to operations or SRE person. If you look at the traditional enterprise, like you know I've seen companies where there's like literally five thousand or so machines, and there's like you know. 20 or 30, uh, right. Yeah. Right. It's the systems engineers, which is just, which is just crazy. And that, and that just yeah. continues to grow. So it's a bunch of things, but, um, I think those are some of the main ones, main ones. Definitely. Okay. Well, Joseph, thanks for coming on to software engineering daily. This has been a really interesting conversation. Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, you've, you've definitely illuminated a lot of the aspects of Kubernetes that were a little, uh, vague to me. So, so thanks for coming on the show and I'm, I'm, uh, I'll be closely watching what happens with Kismatic and, Uh, and all your other work. Great. Thanks again for having me, Jeff.